Begin Podfix Network transmission. In three, two, one. Whether you're fly fishing in a stream, getting those ankles wet, or deep in the ocean casting nets, fish nerds, fish nerds, fish nerds, it's a podcast. Hello and welcome to the Fish Nerds, a show about fish, fishing, and eating fish. I'm Clay Groves, Chief Executive Fish Nerd, Licensed Fishing Guide, your best friend, and John King. Hi. Hey, what's going on, man? Crappie hippie. Tell us who you are, John. I am John King, the crappie hippie. I'm Clay's co-host again this evening. I am also the co-founder of Glasswater Angling, lead-free fishing. Um, we make lead-free fishing lures, lead-free jig heads. We have all kinds of good products. You can come and check us out at glasswaterangling.com so that's just a small part of my story but the main part of my story these days well john we've got a big show tonight we have lots of lots of people joining us which is really exciting so we're, yeah, gonna, we're gonna be talking about flowers but hang on for that story of just a minute <laughs> we're gonna talk about fire and ice a cigar event we're gonna do a little, just a little bit of news not a lot tonight uh doc martin is back with us she got to interview the shark guy, Dr. David Schiffman, he was on the podcast a couple months ago, uh, his new book out. And then uh, you talked to Todd Correer about cinder worms, so that'll be fun. And even got Jeff Downson back in the game. Haven't heard from Jeff in a long time, or effing librarian. So, holy smokes, a lot to get into. So why don't we get right into it? All righty. Well, I'm going to start this off with a question, Clay. Mm-hmm. You like flowers? You don't send me love songs? anymore uh yeah i like flowers john <laughs> well do you believe in flower signs for fishing it's so like so you go shad fishing when the shad berry bushes are in bloom that kind of stuff hey, that thing yeah yeah yes i do awesome you're awesome all right well the daffodils are getting ready to bloom here in kansas where you have ground showing <laughs> yeah yeah we're, um, <laughs> we're <laughs> in the tropical south compared to y'all we've so, got two feet of know. snow on the ground still <laughs> it's happy springtime by the way Happy springtime to you, too. This is awesome. I'm finally, finally, you know, over the line into spring. Good, because my wood pile is is definitely not going to hold out much longer. That's good news. Um, yeah. So, anyway, I've been looking at the daffodil patch, and they're getting really swollen, and I see little odd petals sticking out through, the, through there and here and there through the covering or whatever you call it when it's closed up like that. But what that means in Kansas is that the walleye spawn is about to happen. So as soon as they get open and blooming strong, the walleye are going to start heading to the rocks and to do their thing. Now, how do walleye spawn, John? Do you know? Pretty much just like... Wait, wait, hang on, talking? hang on, hang on. Oh. got to play our sex music. Oh, yeah. Hmm. All right, John, tell me how walleye do it. I'm going to tell you how walleye do it. Oh, yeah. First of all, that <laughs> big old lady walleye, she come down on the rocks. She looking around. She finds a place where she thinks is suitable, and she'll have some male walleye following her along. And then she will release her eggs at random because these are non-custodial what are they non-husbandary uh, these are uh, <laughs> they're bad parents <laughs> they're bad parents they're indifferent parents so she's just gonna do her thing and then these males are gonna swim along after her and and dump their their part of the contribution over the top of those eggs and then in a little bit they're gonna hatch out in these beautiful little walleye eggs. 
Yeah. And the most get eaten. Yeah. <laughs> but but the the crazy thing is that we have this reservoir near me and it's it's right, you know, it is the reservoir that was built to serve the Kansas side of the you know, X million, uh, what, one and a half million people in the mm -hmm. Kansas City metro area. So a lot of people come on down to Hillsdale and the walleye fishery has held up admirably since 1983. Well, how do they do this? I thought they just don't fish in it all, all the time. But what they do is they set up these net traps and those females swim in there. And then the biologists get hold of them and strip the eggs out of them. And I assume they grab a few males, maybe. To, I don't know exactly how they do it. And I, I know the hardcore nerds are going to be like, oh, come on, man. You know, get out there and, and really research this thing. And hopefully I will. But it's really groovy because they just they strip the eggs right there, put the female back in the lake and uh, take the eggs back to the hatchery. And then they raise them from there. So they don't have to have any brood fish to speak of. Mm -hmm. They just they just kind of catch these gals as they're coming up there to do their natural thing. And then they leave them in the lake. I've always been freaked out about how many five, six, seven, and even occasional 10 pound walleye this lake can produce. And it's been producing forever, but this is so ingenious. I just had to talk about it because when I walked by those daffodils today and I saw those petals peeping out, I was like, man, I got to let clay in on this. That's a good thing to know. Now I do know how they strip salmon and spawn salmon the same way. So like okay. in, in New Hampshire, and this happened in November, New Hampshire, the salmon hit the rivers that have all the dams around the lakes and they net all the salmon out in these big traps and they literally take the females out and they just, when it's stripping, that means you hold the fish in your arms and you just squeeze their bellies and it squirts out all these eggs into a, they use Tupperware, John, like a white Tupperware container. <laughs> and then they, then they put that fish back in the lake and it goes on about its way and then they take a male salmon and they'll take four or five females all in one pile of eggs and they'll take one male salmon, it's all they need, and they'll squirt all that, they call it milt, John. Milt, yes. Milt, that, that's, that's fish talk for sperm. And they put that all on top of the eggs, and they just mix it all together, bring it all to the hatchery, and birth them all there. It's so they go ahead and get, get the milt right then, then probably. I'll yep. what walleye, they grab those. Yeah, and then this explains the decline in the popularity of the name Milton. <laughs> uh, because I, I, you know, too many people are too scientific these days, you know, mm -hmm. and, um, I mean, respect all mad respect, to all the Miltons out there, but I can see, I can see your struggle. Yeah. little Milty. Sorry, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So what, what's next on the agenda? You got a, well, so John, every year I partner with our local cigar shop up here called cigar shenanigans and, uh, that's Vinnie works. There. He's a bartender there. Uh, and we do an event on the ice called Fire and Ice. And we started this five years ago. And we partnered with Dunbarton Cigar and Trust Cigar Factory. They're in London, New Hampshire. And the owner, his name is Steve Saka. You can Google him. He's kind of a big deal dude. And a big dude. Like, he's a monster of a guy. Like, 300 pounds, bald guy, cigar smoker, whiskey guy. You know, like, just, you know, just big monster of a dude, right? Super nice. And he comes up. And he is popular enough where he's a draw, where people don't care about the fishing as much as they care about meeting Steve Saka. So he's like a celebrity cigar guy. And so fishing is secondary. And so we just did our, did our fifth year. We bring about 20 to 25 anglers out every single year, charge them a bunch of money. And then they, they have a special Woodbridge Reserve uh, bourbon blended just for this event every year. Special cigars from Dunbarton Cigar and Trust. And of course, you know, real time hanging out with this famous cigar guy, Steve Saka. So I put together just a little bit of a clip of a walk around I did on 
our pond with some fishing, and we even caught fish during it, and even, John, caught a trophy-sized pumpkin seed. Whoa. Uh, so New cool. Hampshire has a catch-and-release trophy program, and the easiest trophy fish to get in New Hampshire is a pumpkin seed. It only has to be eight inches long, and you're only required to prove it by taking a photo of the person who caught it with the fish looking healthy and the lake behind them. You don't need a tape measure, nothing. They want the fish back in the water as fast as possible, so they don't even care if you measure it. They just want to guess you really might have to guess the length i'll be measured it but so this was so we have had a listener a listener a fisher catch a trophy fish while i was doing a, a live walk around on facebook and so we're going to play that little cut for you now we're on pequocket pond secret pond in conway Vinny's here hi Vinny. what's going on we're doing fire and ice our annual trip with uh mr gosh shenanigans yep and uh steve saka dunbarton tech tobacco yeah so I'll, we'll show you what's going on here first of all Vinny cooked some great chili. Show us that chili. Oh, look at that. Beautiful. We got a nice fire going. It's like, uh, what, 40 degrees out? Yep. Almost no wind. We catch a fish, smoke cigars. Perfect day. Perfect day. Perfect day. So let's show you everything. We got a special blend of Woodford reserve for the trip. Let's take a walk. I got you a little tour here. All right, there's the ice hole. We're still on about a foot of ice here, which is pretty great. George got the first fish of the day. George has been fishing with us for four years now, five years, and he's never caught a fish until today. And today he caught the first fish of the day. That's right. That's pretty amazing. How'd it feel? It was feeling damn good. And then you caught you caught another one, and then nothing else. No. Why, why not? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know why. <laughs> Say your name. Peter. Where are you from, Peter? I'm from upstate New York. I live in Maine. Live in Maine now? How's the fishing been? Ah, not too bad at all. How many fish have you caught? Uh, two on the jig, two on the bumps. Good. What have you caught? Uh, one pickerel. That's not bad. Uh, you you waiting, for, waiting for a bass? That I am. I hope you get him. I hope you get him. Well, thank you. It's, it's hard to see other bass come out of the water, not out of your hole. I haven't caught a bass in many years. Well, keep, keep at it. Keep at it. Hello. Hi. Say Say your name. Maybe you're from? Canada. Quebec? Yes. And you having fun? Hello. <laughs> yeah, I saw you catching fish over there like crazy mm -hmm. on the tip-ups. Yeah, uh, I got three of my own and one on the flight. Pretty good. Yes. So four fish so far. Yes. All right. And you're having a good time. Mm -hmm. And how about this weather? Oh, it's amazing. It's so comfortable. Yeah. Did you have some chili? Uh, yeah, just got one. Good. It was delicious. Did you have some bourbon? Mm, not yet. Not yet. Well, Steve's, no. Steve's right over there, so we'll we'll get after that. Okay. <laughs> right. Thanks. Hey, Steve. Say your name. Oscar. Oscar, from where? Canada. How's the fishing today? Bad. Bad? <laughs> <laughs> well, say your name. Yes, the same. The same because I haven't catched the first one. Oh, oh but you... But you, a, this is not, this is not good one. for the guide service here. I don't know if this is a good social... That's Steve Saka from... Steve Saka from Dumbarton Tobacco. Yeah. And the fishing has been fantastic for everybody but these two. Right. You know why? Because they're having too much fun. Oh, you know, the problem is it's warm out. If you were uncomfortable, we'd be happier people. So. No, we wouldn't be happier people. We don't want to fish. There's a difference. What's the bourbon you carry today? Uh, we are currently tasting the uh, Noah's Milk. Nice. That was delicious. Oh, thank you. Not that I bottled it. Yeah, no, I made it myself. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, my work. I did it in my kitchen. Yeah. And what are the cigars you got there? Uh, cigars are the Nikerita Sakakam. Mm. 
Saka Khan. Is that Khan. your name in the middle on purpose? Nope. So it's kind of weird. So you can't give yourself nicknames. There's a rule. Right. 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 It's weird if you do it yourself. Right. You wear it. It's just way too. So when I was in the Navy, um, on my last ship, I had been on it for four years and I was really bored. So I started <laughs> to learn how to be an underway junior officer of the deck. And that's normally something that like a second lieutenant learns. Right. And what you're actually doing is you're conning the ship. You're navigating and you're calling out the calls to the helmsman as to where the ship should go. And that's called conning. And at the same time was when Shaka Khan was popular music. Right? Shaka Khan, Shaka Khan. Shaka Khan, Shaka Khan. Yeah, yeah. So they just started calling me Saka Khan. I love it. I and love that, it. And that's where it came from. And it's really kind of a weird tie-in because my middle name is Timujin. There's a lot of options for nicknames. So, so. Timujin, Timujin is the birth name of Genghis Khan. No. Yes. My father had very high aspirations. Well, apparently. Yeah, so which obviously weren't fulfilled. So uh, so there's like a lot of weird reasons why Saka Khan kind of st stuck. Awesome. Yeah. That's so cool. And this is your fifth year doing this with us, and we, yeah. and we have so much fun. No, I love it. Every year. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's a great yeah. event. It's, you know what I like about it? It's, it's just different. You do cigar events, and you hang out in the store, and yeah, but it's the same old, same old. It's... It's nice to get out, some fresh air, you meet some people. I mean, look at the views. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's stunning out here. I mean, so yeah. it's, 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 one of, it's, one of, it's one of my favorite events every single year. The only, the only thing that you could say is a potential negative is how limited it is. Right. You can only do 25 people. It's hard, to, it's hard to do more than that. Yeah, it so, really is. But yeah. Other than that, no, it's, it's, definitely, it's definitely one of the most interesting cigar events I've ever done. I've been doing these for like 30 years. Well, we appreciate you doing it with us. It's we love it, and we always have so much fun, and we love meeting new people. Your first time? How many times you've done it? Yeah. Three is, times. Is this third time for you? Yeah, they come down from Quebec for this. Right. So yeah. Cuba here. Cuba, all the way. Cuba. You are from Cuba, so you know cigars. Are you schooling Steve on cigars? <laughs> Not too much. I'm gonna put her to work. You should. You should. You should. Well. Steve, thank you so much for putting this together. No, thank, it's so lot, fun. Man. It's so fun. All right, let's get, get some fish because I'm on live, and if you don't catch a fish, it's disappointing. We've <laughs> a few fish today. We have. Yeah, we had one person caught nine fish. We got a few big bass. Yeah. Lots of big uh, sunfish. Someone got a trophy size. George got a trophy size pumpkin seeds. I think a little state recognition for that. Now George has been to his five years with us, and his first fish he caught today was the first fish he caught. Which tells in five you years. the event is, that you've five <laughs> years before you've caught a fish. Yeah, I like it. You keep coming back. I, I always blame the clients. So. We will, we will. Well, and we can't promise this, this weather. But. Well, that's the thing that's, the thing that's nice about this. You don't have to know how to fish. You don't have to have any equipment. You can just come out here. Yeah. Everything's provided yes, for yes. you. Yes. And yeah. the truth yeah. is... Fish on. Oh, I got to go get a fish. I got to say bye. Say bye. Who's got, who's got a fish? Who's got one? I'm hurrying. Is it a pumpkin seed? Now, if that's eight inches long, that's a trophy pumpkin seed. I think it is. Yeah. Hold it. Yeah. You're on Facebook Live. Guess what? Yeah. That is a trophy pumpkin seed, which means you're going to get state recognition for that fish. No way. You'll get a letter from the commissioner's office, and you'll get to uh, your name on the website for one of the biggest pumpkin seeds in New Hampshire. Whoa, Where, what's your name? 
Don't, don't hurt the fish. What's, what's your name? Jeff. Jeff, and we're from where? Sherbrooke, Quebec. And how many times have you been, been out with us? Uh, I don't know. Three times? Yeah, three times, yeah. Three times. All right. Well, I'm going to end this live stream so I can take pictures and we can get you that trophy patch. Oh, yeah. All right. Thanks. And we're back. So there it is, John. That is awesome. That is awesome. You know, I love those pumpkin seeds. We don't have too many of them around here. And I, uh, eight inches sounds all right. That's all right. Well, I, and then you know what's funny about pumpkin seeds? So, um, our friend who won the big rotary fishing derby a couple of years ago and did a stats show with him a couple of weeks ago here on, po- on the podcast. Dude, he, I can still remember that. I yeah. know looking at me, you think, well, maybe I'm I talking can, to but, listeners but more than you. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, he, Mike Steffen, he has the state record for pumpkin seeds in New Hampshire. Now, last summer, I took my niece out fishing and she caught and released a pumpkin seed that was bigger than his. Oh, yeah. But if we wanted to kill that fish, we would have the state record. Now, isn't it strange that to get a state record, you have to kill the fish? Yeah, I, you know, I mean, I'm just kind of. I don't know about those kind of records. We keep pond records down here at the test pond. And, uh, my friend Nicole had it now, now Kim, the crappie stopper has it on the red ears. You know, I just, I can't, you know, to each their own, but yeah, it's crying shame. You got to take a, a special survivor, a very special genetics of mm-hmm. that great monumental fish and put it to death to see if you've won the, uh, state, record which will probably get beat next year or yeah, five well, so, years or whatever so when dave kellum and i went fishing on the quest to catch and eat all the fish in new hampshire dave caught the state record channel catfish right and uh, yes he did right and, on dave. And, and the the to get that thing certified you have to find a uh, certified scale in the state who will take it and put it on the scale and that certified scale means like a deli scale that's been like regulated Right, And most stores and delis won't let you bring outside food or items into their buildings because it's a contamination problem. So it's a real challenge to find that. We end up finding one. It took us about four stores of begging and talking people <laughs> into it. But then you have to find an actual fishing game biologist, not a fishing game officer, an actual biologist to, to touch that fish and confirm its, uh, its species in person. Uh, and okay. you catch these fish at weird times. It was a, we caught it on a Sunday night at 7 o'clock, you know, oh, in whoa. September. And we had to find all this stuff, and we did it. <laughs> but it took like four hours to certify this fish. So yeah, a, a lot of people did... who get records don't bother. They just catch and take photos, release. That's it. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and it's all right either way. But I, I can imagine that poor biologist on Sunday night, hey, man, can you look at my fish? Yeah, that's exactly what it was like. He was annoyed with it, but it was a big, it was a big deal. And, and it doesn't happen to him very often. It's not like every day someone's breaking a record. So, yeah. I told him not to give my number out. I know. Um, I know. <laughs> all right, well, that's all I got for that. So let's, why don't we do some news? And then we'll get to Dr. David Schiffman. All right. All right, let's do some fish in the news. John. All right, this is kind of fun. This is fun. It's just a funny thing. Do you know Greg Calhoun? Yeah, he's a customer, actually, and he he got to do some co-hosting, I do believe. And He did? The guy is way into yarn and knitting and he has a podcast. crochet and all that. He yeah. has his own podcast on it. Right, it's called the uh, Knitting, the knitting um, Daddy podcast with Greg, and he actually knitted me a little fish. I don't know if you're looking at your screen right now, but I've got a little fish decoration here that he made for me oh wow that that he knitted it. it's adorable it's little but now knitting fish is a real thing like it's a yeah. popular thing now now the other day doc martin messaged me 
and asked me if we knew any knitters. Now, she didn't share this article with me, but then as soon as she talked to me, this article came up my news feed. And uh, <laughs> the, the headline is, Crochet Your Own Halibut, Unwind with Our Handy Collection of Crochet Crafting Patterns, No Strings Attached. Well, maybe a few. Create amazing keepsakes. Just have fun for the halibut. Shout out. <laughs> uh, and so, you can't resist that joke. That joke is so easy, right? <laughs> So there's all kinds of patterns, and they're all free, and it's at nps.gov, and on our Facebook, not our Facebook, on our website, uh, fishnerds.com is a link, but they've got uh, halibut crochet patterns, tri-ups crochet patterns, if you're really nerdy, lava flow crochet, walleye crochets, so all kinds of different crochets, and the patterns are on there, free to download, and you can crochet your own fishes. That is fabulous because my daughter has just gotten into crochet and she's, of course, amazing at it. And I'm going to pass this right on along to her. Yeah, both of my kids have gotten into crocheting lately as well. So it's, we'll it's, see, it's all, trending. All the, yeah, yeah. All the art kids are into it. So check yeah, it out. Check it out. And they're just cute. And that's why I put that in the news for no other reason than John. And that's my only news I got for you because when I searched for fish news today, all I found was a million dead fish in, in Australia that died because uh. of a flood. And it's not that interesting in a, as a story goes because, you know, shit happens. <laughs> so, no, I, yeah. gee, many, I was going to look at that because I thought it was maybe because Luke took a leak in the river, but I guess it's something else, huh? This must be something else, yeah. Luke's, Luke's toxins got into the river. <laughs> Speaking of Luke, <laughs> so, uh, he's, he's been asked to come back on the podcast. We'll have to get him on in a couple of weeks. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Well, you mind if I do a little news story here real quick? Why don't you get into it? Yep. Okay, I'll get into it because, you know, I do a lot of stories on fishing because that's that's the F that I'm most in tune with. But I just started feeling like maybe I was doing too many stories on fishing. So I want to do one just purely on fish because this was really groovy and it actually was went viral. It, it, it hit a lot of the outlets. But anyway, here I go. Okay. The ghost catfish, or some people call them glass catfish. I don't know if that's right or not, but I'm going to keep calling it the ghost catfish. Is a small freshwater fish that's native to rivers in Thailand and the article says in Southeast Asia, as mm -hmm. opposed to the Thailand in southern New Hampshire or western Kansas, I guess. It's the one in Southeast Asia. All right. Okay. So anyway, <laughs> they're found in these rivers and so forth are relatively common fish there. And a lot of folks in the USA, they're I guess they're bred for the pet uh, industry. And uh, they say they're pretty easy to care for, show up in a lot of aquarium tanks, uh, about five, ten dollars each. Or you can get them in the mail for like fifteen dollars ship. And so a lot of people know about these fish and they look pretty cool. You can check out the, we've got, of course, I have the link down there and you can look at how cool they are. But apart from the head and the, of the fish and its spine, it is completely translucent. But when light hits a ghost catfish just right, its body shimmers with glistening rainbow colors. Beautiful. Now, yeah, they are, aren't they? Okay. So now experts at China's, here we go. I'm going to do my best. Experts at China's Shanghai. I've already blown it, Clay. Gosh darn it, I practiced before came on. I'm this is why, it. John, I never try. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Experts at China's Shanghai Jiaotong University have worked out how this fish is able to create this iridescent glow. The team used a combination of scientific equipment, including x-rays and laser lights, for the study, which they shown on the fish. They found that the catfish have unique muscles which are stacked tightly and can bend light into rainbow colors. Mm. Now, Kibben Zhao, which I assume is Dr. Kibben Zhao, and Kibben, Q-I-B-I-N, I'm doing my best again, and his colleagues examine these fish and samples of their different tissues to figure out how this iridescence arises. 
And here's a quote from Dr. Zhao. Different from many of the fish species that have been identified to have structural colors in reflection, the structural color of the ghost catfish only appears in transmission, which is unusual, says Zhao. Those other fish tend to get their shimmer from phototronic structures. Which is like shapes ref that reflective things? Yeah, phototronic, photo uh, light, you know, and so on. Look, I'm not going to tend, you know, even pretend to be as smart as our listeners or Doc or anybody else. <laughs> but yeah, I'm mean, a phototronic. I assume it has to do with light and, and the way they reflect it. Anyway, they have shapes that actually change the color of light as they reflect it. So, you know, when they say, oh, indigo bunting is actually black, not indigo, you know, and, and stuff like that, that. I think this is what they're talking about. I think so. And so, go in there. So anyway, it's in their scales, their skin, their feathers, what, ha what you have it. Uh, but, and of course they, he said, this is how we assume ghost catfish got their shine too. But actually we did spend a lot of time looking for phototronic structures in the skin. We didn't find any that were the culprits here. So we started to study the muscle, which previously we'd only studied for the purpose to explain why it is so transparent. Mm -hmm. But after several months, we realized that it is the muscle that has caused the diffraction colors, says Zhao. The researchers found that the colors come from muscle fibers called sarcomeres, which mediate the contraction and relaxation of muscles. When light shines through these fish, these sarcomeres act something like prisms, breaking the light into its constituent colors. While these structures may occur in other types of fish too, we can only see them in the goat catfish because the fish are so small, just a few centimeters long, and transparent. Wow. But the team says that their new findings could explain how other see-through aquatic species such as eel larvae and ice fishes also appear rainbow-like. That's amazing. Isn't it? The really real cool. rainbow fish. The real rainbow fish. You got it, bro. All right. That's cool. Thanks for sharing that, John. I've never heard of this fish or seen it until just now. It's very popular aquarium fish. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, we'd have to ask Jeff because he used to have that hobby. He gave it up. Mm -hmm. uh, but Jeff, Jeff is a remarkable, remarkable man of a of, of, uh, many uh eventful past and he talks about his bird watching and his aquarium days and all that kind of stuff so i'm sure uh you know there's a lot of our listeners i hope there's a lot of our listeners that are into the aquarium thing and and they know exactly what we're doing here well good they know more than me <laughs> <laughs> they know more than aquarium is something i've never got into so it's well not... my mama used to be totally into it she used to have three or four tanks and now mm -hmm. she's down to um, one. But, so my extent of yeah. keeping fish alive is a bait bucket with an aerator in my basement. So that's about uh -huh. as good as I uh -huh. can do it. There you go. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Although when I worked at the Emmerskate Fishways, I did build and maintain uh, a cold water tank for salmons and uh, a tank for American eels as well. And we had eel escape problems for months as I learned how to dial that in so they keep them, keep them, keep them in the water. <laughs> you get you get in the work in the work in the morning. You find eels squirming by the front door trying to get out. Oh they wow! Get, well, they are born to wander. They are born to wander. All right, is that the news? Are we done with the news? I think we're done. All right. All right, and so Doctor Schiffman, who came on our podcast a few months ago to talk about his new book called Why Shark Matters went to Emporia State University, where Doc Martin, our chief science officer, I like saying it that way, chief science officer, uh, <laughs> she, she's, a, she's a professor there, 
and he did a presentation and I said, Doc, 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 you've you've got the guy. Grab an interview. So I'm gonna just play that interview for you. Hey everybody, it's Doc Martin. I'm so glad to be back. I haven't actually been on the podcast in a couple months, I think. So I'm really excited to be here uh, with a, a recurring guest. I think you're a staple on the fish nerds now. And so we have Dr. David Schiffman, shark scientist, back to talk to us about something new you haven't heard of already. Um, he's actually here with me at Emporia State University in Kansas. And he's doing a lot of really cool stuff for us here on campus. He's giving a talk um, early this afternoon on public science engagement for some of our folks here within the department. And then later tonight, he's giving a huge talk to the public at large, um, featuring his new book, um, which he's already been on the podcast last year to talk about. So you can go back to an episode and listen to that. But today, we're going to talk about the uh, some new work that he's been working on, uh, on the next generation of conservation research and policy priorities for some of the threatened and exploited sharks in the United States. And he's going to give us just a really brief introduction on what that research found and why it's important and why he's working on it. So without further ado, uh, Dr. Schiffman, take it away. All right. Thanks, Doc. Happy to be here. It's fun to get to be in person with one of y'all. This is my third time being featured on the podcast, and everything else has been over Zoom. Uh, so as frequent fish nerds, uh, guests, or listeners know, sharks are in trouble. Many species of sharks are, face very, very serious risk of extinction. And in a lot of cases, we need more science in order to know how to better protect them. And in fact, I find that a lot of early career scientists, graduate students, postdocs, starting professors, want to dedicate their scientific research to generating data that will help protect species of concern. But their training is in science, not management, not law, not policy. So they don't really know how to do that. So that was the impetus behind this particular project, which is published open access in the journal Conservation Science and Practice, if anyone wants to learn more about it. But what we did is we did what's called an expert solicitation approach to try to identify a list of research priorities that someone is a scientist, they work on a particular species, they want to know what we can do, uh, what we need to know in order to help better protect them, they can just go to this one document and it says, you don't need to guess, you don't need to reinvent the wheel poorly on your own. So we identified uh, several hundred experts in the United States with expertise in fisheries management, conservation policy or advocacy, science, uh, things of that nature, who work specifically on the species of sharks and rays and their relatives found in U.S. waters that are considered at some risk of extinction. And we ask them, just suggest research priorities. What are 15 things that you think we should know that we don't know now? That we, if you were to tell, if someone were to come to you and say, I want to study something and I want it to be relevant, what should it be? Suggest up to 15 things. And then we combined everyone's suggestions and we came up with this list of 35 research priorities that are in seven categories. So it's a bunch of different things. One is just knowing more about how many sharks are there, do more stock assessments than we're doing now. Uh, do stock assessments for species that have never been fished yet but might be in the future, so we have baseline data. Do more frequent stock assessments of fisheries that are fished. There were, there were st questions having to do with migration and habitat usage a lot of emphasis on 
what is climate change doing to that stuff? We know that changing climates result in changes in habitat use patterns, but if a species it currently lives in what's a protected area because it's its current range, what is going to happen in 20 years when that's not its range anymore? Um, and there were a lot, of, a lot of emphasis on developing new research tools because the old ones that we've been using forever maybe aren't as great as we used to think they were. Uh, there were a lot of practical applied science about what types of fishing gear used in what way result in less bycatch mortality and how can we handle sharks that are caught by commercial fisheries better to improve their chances of survival, things like that. There were a lot of questions about what happens to the ecosystem when sharks aren't there anymore. These questions about the broader ecosystem role of sharks, which is uh, a, a lot of the stuff that I work on and talk about. It's why the book is called Why Sharks Matter, not just Why Sharks Are Neat. There were a lot of questions uh, about sort of more effective ways to do public science engagement and what are the, why do so many people know, in sarcastic air quotes, uh, things that are wrong about sharks and about ocean conservation? Uh, what are the more effective ways for experts to get into the community and, and communicate these topics? And then there were a variety of other uh, miscellaneous questions. So in total, we got 35 research questions, and we also had some priorities for policy advocacy, and we asked folks just sort of some general questions about what they think is the general state of shark science and shark conservation and shark fisheries management, um, and a bunch of questions along those lines. So the paper is out. It is in the journal Conservation Science and Practice, which is an open access Society for Conservation Biology journal. And we hope that it'll be useful for early career scientists trying to figure out how to put their research to practical good use. All right, thank you, David. I, I do have a follow-up question, if that's okay. Absolutely. And so, uh, in, in looking at, you know, the 35 research priorities, some of those have to be more achievable or less achievable or just more or less difficult, right? Because of whatever has to go into conducting that research. And so, which one do you think is the easiest? Oh, that's a tricky question. So notably, some of these are could be rephrased as that thing that you're already doing really well, do it slightly differently or with a different species or in a different body of water. Uh, so that would be probably relatively easy. Some of them are develop new nationwide scale collaborations or develop entirely new technologies. Those would take a little more time. Um, and sometimes it's just reprioritize how we're doing things. Uh, a, a, in a past study that I did where we surveyed members of the environmental nonprofit community, there was a quote from one of these people that I surveyed that I, had, I was told by peer reviewers I had to remove, which I'm still salty about. But they said, uh, there are some species that are just really, really well studied and we don't need to know that much more about them. Do we really need to be spending millions of dollars to find out where great white sharks go to the bathroom? And I was not allowed to include that quote in there, but I think it illustrates nicely that you know some species it's very easy to get funding for and some species we know almost nothing about. Uh, so there, certainly these are not equally easy for, any, for everyone to plug into, but I think if we were to work on all of these broadly as a scientific community, then sharks would be in much better shape than they are now. Awesome, well, thank you so much. This is a very quick interview today because you've got a lot going on and we really appreciate having you on uh, our podcast again. It's always delightful to hear from you. 
And so uh, we'll, we'll look forward to interview number four sometime in the future. So uh, thank you so much, David, and we'll look forward to hearing from you uh, when you have new work to share. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks, Doc. And, you know, John, anytime we get Doc Martin to get an interview for us, we're going to take it every time. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Get, guess who's visiting Emporia State University this week with Doc? Uh, Rhett Talbot and oh, Karen yeah. Talbot. Now, Karen Talbot is the probably the best scientific fish illustrator I've ever seen. And she's amazing. And put together the glasses, uh, glass collector items that Orvis now sells called Angler's Pint. And that's how I met her. When she launched that through Kickstarter, I went up and interviewed her in Rockland, Maine, which is about three hours northeast of where I'm at. But then I met her husband, Rhett Talbot who is a National Geographic writer. He's got two books on sharks coming out soon. So the two of them, powerhouse science couple, going out to Emporia State University, those kids, those students, have no idea how good they have it because they're going to learn from the best. They're getting lectures from Rhett Talbot. They're going to get scientific illustration classes from Karen Talbot. So my hope is that Doc Martin will grab some interviews with them while they're out there and send them back to me. Well, come on, Doc. Please do it if you can. She'll do it. She'll do it. All right. You know she will. You yeah. Know she will. Can we talk about cinder worms? Can we? Let's let's let my friend Todd Correa tell us a little bit about cinder worms. What do you say, Clay? Let's get it. Hello, Fish Nerd Nation. This is Crappie Hippie here, your tree hugging redneck from Eastern Kansas. And with me here on this fine morning is one of our new correspondents, Todd Correa, the fish rap writer. Todd was kind enough to do a piece in our last show about Rosie's Tackle Shop, where a child prodigy wraps rods and paints shells and also ties flies. And he sent me a video of her tying flies on Instagram. And what an intense face and what an intense young person. Uh, but I was mostly curious about this fly. It's called the cinder worm. And I want to know about cinder worms. I want to know about these flies. And since I live in Kansas and don't know nothing, know how about fishing out there on the Atlantic coast. I had to get back after Todd. So, Todd, you know, I might shoot a question in here or there, but by and large, bro, I'm just going to let you take over right now and tell the listeners all the things you know about cinder worms. Well, I appreciate you giving me the helm. Uh, but first of all, isn't that Rosie amazing? She oh. is uh, She is one cool cat, and the more people I've talked to about her, I always kind of lead in with this person who builds rods and ties flies and can talk the talk and walk the walk, and I say, oh, yeah, by the way, she's eight years old. Yeah, I I just, I'm flabbergasted. It was a great story, and, and it was great to read it in your column, and it was great to have her on the show. No, I can't say enough. I don't want to bore the listeners by going on and on, but she is one amazing young lady. So tell me, tell me, tell me, because she, she says she can put us on some nice stripers with their cinder worms, but I don't know nothing about no cinder worms. So fill me All in, right. bro. Let, let's get the hard part out of the way. Cinder worms are, uh, they're called Nerisus limbata, which is a fancy way of saying a, it's a slimy, little, shaky, shimmering kind of gross worm that lives in the mud. They breathe through their skins, and they live very happily in the, uh, in the substrate of salt ponds and, and estuaries. So for about 10 months or so, depending on the weather, they just kind of live a happy life in the mud, doing their mud thing. And then right around Mother's Day, when the water gets to 60 degrees, somewhere in that range, 60, 62, 65 Something in the amazing book of Mother Nature calls them and they leave the mud and they swim up on the moon 
sometimes during the day, sometimes later in the day. It's a very it's a very fickle fishery, which is why it's so fantastically frustrating. Too. So it might be first thing in the morning. It might be uh, it might be towards sunset. It's really based on the moon. It's based on Mother's Day, as all things should be, based on our, our mothers and, and mother-in-laws. <laughs> they, uh, they make their way to the surface, and they wiggle around, and they shake and shimmy. And, and so, there, so there's two parts here. So they, they've, they've left the mud because they know Mother Nature called them up, said it's time to, uh, it's time to procreate. So this is, like the, this is like nature's strangest spring break, right? So they, <laughs> they all come to the surface, and, uh, and they grow this thing like magically. And we're talking in hours, man. It's like it, they grow this thing called an epitope. So here's these little slimy things right around just below the surface and they're shimmying, they're shaking, right? And, uh, and all of a sudden they grow this paddle and this, this paddle called an epitope, it not only propels them around the water, but it also uh, helps distribute, uh, you know, bodily fluids necessary to, you know. What, sperm that. and eggs? You're allowed to say sperm and eggs on this show. We're scientists here. Did I say that? <laughs> no, I didn't know. All right. All right. Well, now I have to the epitope helps deliver the sperm and eggs. So there's your next spring break visual, I guess. <laughs> so, so they're all shimmying around, right? And this this could last for a tide. It could last for a day. It could go all night. It could go. It sounds like my college years. It could last five minutes, or it could go all night. <laughs> uh, uh, maybe we should edit that one out. Anyway. So, so they're flying around the surface, right? And they're rubbing into each other and they're banging into each other and they're shimmying along. And so you can be in a salt pond on a Tuesday, right? You catch a bass, maybe two, just, you know, normal fishing kind of thing. But on Wednesday morning, no joke, there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of bass. They just know, man, like they're, they're in the ocean, they're doing the thing or they're out one of the bigger ponds or they're cruising the beaches looking for eels or shrimp or, you know, and all of a sudden, Something says, hey, man, it's Mother's Day. You got to get in the salt pond. And they come in by the thousands. And all of a sudden, the, you'll be in three feet of water. And the surface is covered in these little pink wiggly things. And the bass just go bonkers. They are all over these things. They just know. They somehow, I don't know, there's a lot of disbelievers out there. You know, there's no conspiracy theory here. Nature knows to send the bass into the salt ponds. And it's just, I mean, it's unbelievable. Oh my goodness. Now I'm sitting here. I am shaking like a leaf. I am so excited. The very idea of it. Explain to us folks that are, that are land bound exactly what is the estuary? What exactly is a salt pond? First of all. Hey, so here, here in new England, well, I mean, you get them all over the, the world, but here in new England, we have a whole series. We're very lucky to have a series of salt ponds and they are tidal flushed ponds, primarily salty, you know, about a third salt. And uh, they have a very distinct aquatic environment, the particular grasses and shoreline animals. You know, we have shrimp and uh, little little brine shrimp, and we have mummy chogs and all these little shiners and minnows that live in there that feed the bass. And there's crabs. So there's, you know, when the water's right, and even, well, in the winter, most things have gone to sleep for the winter, but mo through most of the year, there's stripers in there. And they feed on a pretty steady diet of mummy chogs and silver sides and crabs and whatever they can, whatever they can get up. But then when these when these worms come up, then it's you know it's like circus time. You know it's game on. These guys are in there and they feed. Some some fishermen and women will make the mistake of you know they get there in the tide and there's cinder worms up and everything's wiggly and shimming and shaking and then it might stop and then they all go home to have a beer. But the bass are still there. So if you're in the know, you can kind of hang out for a couple minutes, have your beer, 
and then go back to casting because those bass are still there and it is oh man the fishing is just so good so they're all in this salt pond and some will come and go on the tides you can you know if it's a tuesday and you slate them you go back on wednesday it's a desert there's nothing there because they left with the tide to go find eels or you know some river herring or something else that's on the beach well i tell you this is the kind of fishing that that makes you stick with it my wife took a while to learn that she's like you you stay in fish and you want to keep fishing when you're catching fish and you want to keep fishing when you're not catching fish and is there any time and i said well when you don't catch them when it it's not what you expect or what you wanted you got to hang around and try to figure out the why on that and so you've kind of clued us into the why i i did so well yesterday and now can't get a lick right they've left us they've left us they've left the arena it's like showing up for a concert the wrong day <laughs> yeah, uh I, unfortunately I've done that. Yeah. <laughs> when, I, when I was younger, I went halfway across France to go see Miles Davis in this cool little bar in Boulogne, France, and I was a king because I was gonna get to see Miles Davis in France. I'm like the coolest guy in town, and it was the night before. <laughs> Had a really nice beer in an empty bar all by myself. <laughs> anyway. All right, that's a good one. <laughs> But you alluded it as we were communicating back and forth about this piece that sometimes that hatch can be too good. And sometimes there's so many of these crazy things flying around that uh, your fly, your lure, whatever you're using gets lost in the shuffle. Is that is that something you've encountered more than once? Definitely. You're spot on. That's that's part of the charm and part of the curse. So when they call it a warm hatch, it's, it's really not a hatch. They just emerge from the mud. And when the epitope shows up and they're doing their thing and the water's all slimy, and the bass are in. Honestly, the chances of you hooking up with a fish are like winning the lottery because there's, you know, there's a million worms and there's 500 bass and there's you and you're slinging, you know, a seven weight thinking you're, you're you know, you're top cat. You're going to catch a fish and the fish are like, forget it. <laughs> Have you seen these things? I'm going to eat the live ones. So there's kind of like, there's a couple ways to look at that. Personally, you know, I'm not, I'm not a great fly fisherman. So if you're in the moment and, and everything's going crazy and it's circus time, I kind of just aim for the fish, like not to sound stupid, but I kind of aim for a fish and hope that because their their mouths are open, man, like they're working. You just want to basically, you know, get a bucket, drop it in, just kind of shoot for the mouth. And that sounds like a great strategy. That's 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 pretty cool. Well, you know, you, you're not like walking a beach and you're just sort of sight casting your way down a sandbar, hoping to find the fish. The fish are right in front of you. They're all over you. I mean, if you're waiting there, you know, there'll be fish bumping up against your legs. It's that cool and that frustrating at the same time <laughs> so the other way to look at it is you got to tie something that looks different so if you're in this big you're in this big salt pond full of cinder worms and everything it's mayhem everything's going nuts instead of throwing a fly that looks like a cinder worm and i'm not trying to lead you down the wrong road here you got to tie something bigger brighter stranger you got to stand out in that crowd um, i have a good friend on the cape eddie stoyak who's a who's a phenomenal fly tire and when he's in this kind of situation, he's throwing flies the size of like Volkswagen seats. He's, you know, they're like puppies on, you know, <laughs> these are puppies on a nine weight. Yeah. The whole theory is that when they're like, when they're crashing all these, all these worms, all of a sudden they see this big chihuahua go by on the left-hand side. They're like, Ooh, maybe I'll take a swipe at that one. And you're in. So it's, it's, you know, you want to match the hatch in the sense of like a trout fisherman. You want to have something in your box that has, you know, the pinks and the reds, just like cinder worms. But when things are going nuts and you haven't caught anything, you know, you got to get strange. You got to go on the outside, fish to the outside of where the fish are, try to make a splash, try to get something a little bit different, slow it down a little bit or speed it up really fast. You, you got to trick them into, into 
being foolish enough to, to go after your your big pink chihuahua fly. All right. Well, listen, I've heard of that strategy. And yeah, the, the trout people run into this problem, too. And that's a lot of what you hear is to change it up, make it bigger, make it bolder. But I really like the tip about fishing the the outside of, of the school, staying out of the out of the main mess and, and just picking them off the, uh, where there's a little more space, perhaps. All right. Do you have anything else you want to tell us about cinder worms? Because I think you pretty well covered it. I would say, you know, if you're going to if you're going to be in town in the salt pond, you're going to be around Mother's Day and you can't get frustrated because you went there on one day and there was nothing because that's normal. It's that magical nature call. It could be like I said before, it could be an hour. It could be a whole tide. It could be all night. So you just got to kind of stick with it. And when they do go back down, just don't think that it's all over. It's time to go home because the bass are still going to feed. And that's when you might want to throw out, you know, a little like a pink sluggo or something a little bit different that sinks down a little farther. You know, you'll you'll increase your chances of a hookup. But it's a fan. I mean, it really is a fantastic time to be in the water. It, it, they're just and they're gorgeous to watch. It's just it's just a miracle of nature to watch these things flying around. And they, for a little slimy worm that breathes through its skin, I mean, they know a lot. Apparently, <laughs> you know, you know, reproducing get back in the mud. Well, I've got the link to your video that shows them all kicking around down in the show notes. Uh, my plan, if I was your neighbor, would just to put your driveway on game cam, one of those game cams that alerts your cell phone. And then when I see you heading out with your fly rod, then I'm, that's when I'm going to just start, you know, I'd be tagging along behind you at a, at a safe distance, at a secret distance, because I think you've got a bit of an inside track on how to get after these things and uh, could shorten my learning curve considerably. But thank you for helping our listeners. Uh, we've got a lot of listeners up in the Northeast and anyone that's not in on this, well, get in on it because doesn't it sound like a lot of fun? All right. This has been Crappie Hippie, your tree hugging redneck from Eastern Kansas with the fish raft rider on cinder worms, tight lines and Valentines. Peace out. All right. Thank you, Todd. That was a remarkable little expose on the cinder worm. This old Midwestern boy didn't know a darn thing about him. And now I feel like I'm ready to pick up my pole and get busy. Cinder worm expert. <laughs> yeah. I'm a cinder worm expert. I wish I could be out there by mother's day because it just sounds too fun. And we'll put a link to the dancing Rhode Island salt pond cinder worms on our show notes. So people can take a listen to the, or can watch that. And then you, um, you have kind of resurrected Jeff Danielson. I thought he was dead. And, <laughs> you know, because the, the Fisher's podcast went a little bit dormant. And it kind of like went into estivation, which is almost like hibernation. And, you and John, you've come back in and you've shuck us up a little bit. You woke us up, got us back rolling again, got me motivated again to make the podcast. And now you got Jeff Danielson, the effing librarian back in. Hey, buddy, I just seen that all you needed was a little helping hand. Mm -hmm. You know, your passion wasn't gone. It's just your time was being ate up by things that had to come first. So it was no problem. But, yeah, you better know it. I'm going after Jeff Danielson because you introduced us and we become buddies because we're not that far apart. And we go fishing a lot now. And anyway, I mean, through fishing with Jeff, he is a real maniac about the culinary preparation of fish water side. I so a question without, for you, John, is it culinary yeah. or culinary? Uh, it, I, I had a man on the street stop me. This has literally happened to me a couple of days ago. I, <laughs> I was talking about their local career and tech center, how their culinary arts programs are doing. And on a guy, I did on the, I do, I read the news for, I, I do, I read news every morning for the for real radio. 
And uh, for the real radio. And a dude walked up and he goes, Clay, I love your morning news. I'm like, thanks. He went, but it's culinary, culinary. And I said, no. I didn't go, I, to, I, I didn't go to Harvard. It's culinary. Well, I, I think if, you, yeah, I, I, in, in New Hampshire and in Kansas, it's culinary. But you know what? It's probably the proper use of the Latinate U to go culinary. Culinary. And I, I'm all over it. You know, look. You know, is it crappie hippie? Is it crappy hippie? Is it crawl pay hippie? Is it crappie hippie? You know, we can just do it the way it comes where we're living. At. No, I'm gonna I'm gonna make it clear that culinary makes me want to like hurt people. It's coming. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. You're just trying to be fancy. Yeah, you fancy lads. You're culinary. I'm a culinary, culinary expert. expert. Well done. Yeah. Well, speaking of culinary Bravo. experts, Clay, yep. <laughs> we've got the finest of culinary experts going to tell us a little bit about the culinary care of fish waterside. All right. All right. Hello, Jeff. What's going on tonight? Oh, not much. Just hoping that uh, we get a little bit more warm weather so we get them whites start to thinking about doing their thing. I hear you. I hear you, man. And speaking of whites... You know, I wanted to cover something tonight that's important, uh, something you've taught me uh, several things about, is the care of fish water side. Now, I know a lot of our listeners are already like, oh, I know how to do that, but a lot of people don't, or a lot of people don't realize that their water side care routine could be improved. So you and I, we like to keep a few whites every now and then. So let's talk about time and temperature and how they relate. One involves the other intimately. But why don't you run down for the listeners our routine as far as the perfect situation. And then we'll talk about as we move away from perfect, when should we give up and just not keep fish today? All right. So ideally for me, I mean, I want to, I don't even want to keep them on a stringer in a live well. I want to like... You want to spike the brain, bleed them out. All right, let's start. Get them with, on. Sorry to interrupt you, buddy, but yeah. spike the brain. Now, that's not like taking two shots of Jack and joint the size of your thumb. That's You're talking about something different, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Something way less fun for the fish. But um, <laughs> yeah, um, but, but ideally very quick because the idea is you want to, not have that fish be stressed out because the longer they're stressed out, apparently this is, this is the thinking is that like the stress hormones and the lactic acid and stuff in the, in the fish from it being stressed out degrades the quality of the meat. And so when you spike the brain, you're literally like taking a knife blade or something. Um, I, one time I had a little piece of wire that I'd sharpened it was like fairly thick gauge copper wire that I had left over from some wiring project. And I sharpened it down and I had it really sharp that I could stick it right in. And basically you want to stick it right in their brain and scramble it as quick as you can, uh, that that's going to stop them from being stressed out. Right. And it's a quick, humane way to kill them. Yeah. Okay. I've heard of this. And, uh, that was your homemade, what, Ikijimi? Is that how that's pronounced? Ikijimi. I was only doing half of Ikijime, which is the other half is that they, that in the Ikijime, which is a Japanese technique, um, they want to go ahead and run a big, long piece of wire all the way down the spinal column ah. because you've still got some residual um, a fish's nervous system is a little, well, I mean, I guess the, any nervous system, the spine 
nerves are still capable of, of like transmitting after the brain's been spiked. And so the idea here with that is, is that you literally destroy, you run a, a long skinny piece of wire all the way down through the entire spinal column. And that should ideally, you know, stop all of that stuff that's triggering like muscle flexion and stuff and build up a lactic acid so that we can get the highest quality meat. And a lot of this is for like sushi grade stuff. It's not going to be cooked. And so they want the absolute highest quality of, of meat. And so the idea is then that by stopping all nerve activity, we can stop all the lactic acid buildup, any okay. unnecessary lactic acid buildup and, and improve the meat flavor. Well, that is fascinating, and I've heard some stuff about the ikajime. In that, also, it, it, it increases the um, shelf life of the fish, their storability on yes. ice, and yeah. like, and for like a lot of sashimi, Japanese chefs insist that the fish, you know, never be frozen or anything. You know, come straight from the boat, pretty much. You know, through a middleman right. that sells it, and then straight to the restaurant. And of course, in some of our coastal cities here in the USA, that's the routine as well. But either way. They make a strong argument, argument, argument. That was the name of my old boat. They make a strong argument for this, this lactic acid. They seem to know what they're talking about. And we're talking about centuries of, of fish care and so on. So that's what always intrigued me about you brothers. Cause you're, you're really into it and uh, you really take good care of your fish. So, all right. So we, we've, we've, we're in an ideal situation where we're, we're close enough to the truck or we've got a small bag or, or we're in some situation, we're in a boat. Or something where we can have a cooler of ice. So you're saying, ideally, we're going to catch that fish. We're going to turn right around, make the bleed. Well, do the brain silencer on them, point of your fillet knife or what have you. Okay. And then talk about bleeding them out. What do we got to do there? Yeah. Typically, I just cut them right at the at the base of the, right there at the kind of juncture between the head and the body, right by the gills. And typically, I want to get the gills too, but there's a, there's a big vein or artery that runs right there kind of between the pectoral fins and the kind of gill plates and stuff and if you just nick that right there they'll bleed out really fast on sometimes on like larger fish like a like a big size catfish um i'll do it the opposite way where i'll hang them up by their head after they've been killed but i'll cut the tail off and let it kind of gravity gravity bleed that way well, that makes a whole lot of sense there. Now, yeah, I don't catch a lot of uh, big catfish or catfish of any kind, but what I do catch is a lot of crappie and a lot of bluegill. And ever since we've started fishing together here about four or five years ago, that's what I'm doing. Uh, I, I've always loved bluegill and crappie, but when you do take that preparatory step, uh, it they are firmer, they are better tasting, they're fresher tasting. Uh, maybe in just you know maybe in a minute way, but the whole idea of of getting the fish asleep deceased in a non-responsive state is 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 the humane way to go about it so anymore i come back say from the pond i'll go and get my stuff to clean them and in the meantime i'll have i've done that i'll have i'll have cut the cut down right down there at the bottom of the gill where the head meets the body yeah you hit that that artery and uh or, or vein or whatever it is and water in that bucket you know red in a matter of minutes you know it's just so much better to clean them when they're you know, I'm, I'm kind of a tough old fart, so I've never worried about them flip-flopping around or never had a whole mind wrestle over the uh, the ethics of cleaning fish until I started hanging out with the darn fish nerds and people like you. So <laughs> I really yeah, like I, uh, go ahead and 
get them get them put to sleep and have them not be flopping around and and that kind of a thing yeah you know as i kind of thought about it is like a lot of the time when we're not doing a lot with these fish and we got them and like got them on a stringer they're laying out on the ground or whatever they're suffocating right you know i this is this is like holding a person underwater basically yeah when you just leave them out there just gasping you know i'm like well that's that's just not cool and so yeah the idea of just a quick humane death um is is kind of the the thing that i'm looking for in addition to the freshness the freshness of the of the flesh i you know these are animals that do have sensations and you know i don't know exactly what goes on in the mind of a fish but i don't want it to suffer any more than it has to well i definitely hear that and if you believe the the argument of the japanese and other people in the east and and of course people now here in the usa if anything's going to stress out a fish it's a suffering and suffocating in the sun on a riverbank or b just to have somebody start cutting its whole body apart while it's still still you know, alive still yeah. looking around so that is going to put that stress factor that whole thing that the idea of ikajime uh into play so uh, uh, when you you open yourself up to how other cultures perceive this and how your fellow humans perceive it um in this case i can't just blame the fish nerds i also like my daughter when she was little she would not watch me clean fish she couldn't you know she just didn't want to even deal with that uh, mental pictures so even if you're utilitarian and you're only doing this because you're really chefy and you and you wanted to be the best possible way or feeling for those fish but like most of us i'm somewhere in between you're somewhere in between because i ain't quitting fishing they're gonna you know i love the fish i catch and release some people say that's playing and torturing and i don't want this i already warned us right we're not going down any side roads tonight man i gotta get this thing done right? <laughs> yeah so we're gonna talk about fish care but yeah, I think the more humane you can be to the fish, the better off you are. So we've just we've talked about the ideal. So we're we're streamside. We've got a source of ice. Uh, we've got enough time, and we've got the wherewithal to uh, go ahead and and do a, a a brain block and get them bled out, put them on the ice. Best case scenario. Now let's move away from that to where you and I are off down some creek somewhere, and we're lucky. We're in spring, so the water's still running fifty five to sixty five degrees, and you know, I can use a stringer or put on a stringer extension to get them out into deeper water. So where are we dealing with here when we start backing away from that ideal situation? Talk about that a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I definitely think this is where you can start to have some like degradation of the, of the flavor of these fish, because either you're going to either a put them on the stringer and throw them out there while they're still alive. Right. And they're going to be, they're going to be struggling because they're on a string stringer and they may not be being able to respire as well as they normally would that is a lot of times why you, you put a fish on a stringer and you think it's fine you think it's out there in the cold nice water and then you pull it in and it's it's not it's not right with right anymore, and it's a crazy you know? thing too because you know we had we caught some wipers i had one that just killed bam like that and the other one stayed alive pretty much till we got home it, it just nuts isn't it i'd i'd almost prefer and this is what i do when i'm at the when i'm trout fishing and i'm keeping trout in cold water is i put them on the stringer but then i just I kill them and cut that thing and then put them on the stringer and throw them out in the cold water. I don't keep them on the stringer and then kill them later. I kill them immediately and throw them out in the cold water and then, and then count on that cold water to keep them in pretty good condition until I can get them back to the, on the ice. Okay. So that sounds logical, but speaking of trout, what about these old trout pictures and the old trout lore about filling your creel with wet grass Put in the trout, put some more wet grass on top. How well does that work? Well, I gotta imagine that's you're I'm, you're 
you're thinking about it, I think what you're doing there is evaporative, evaporative cooling, right? So by keeping them moist, you're constantly getting them some of that evaporative cooling, and that's got to keep them at least cooler than the ambient temperature, whatever that is. Yeah, true. And 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 also all these trout have been gilled, gutted, and, and bled. So yeah. that seems like that would be better to do that, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, that would be an, that would be a good way to do it. And like I said, this, by keeping them moist, you've got the, that evaporative cooling, which I don't, this would be an interesting experiment to do, to see how much you could cool uh, compared to ambient temperature by that technique. Um, hmm, I may have to try that. I don't know. It just makes me think of the sun also rises by Hemingway where they catch the trout yeah. and they put them on the grass or put them, you know, like the gill and gut them. And then they, have their little picnic and take a nap and then they finally take them back to the hotel and give them to the chef to make chef, them for their yeah. dinner yeah so it's pretty good but i'll tell you this is really important because we get in this argument with people about in my particular case it's over freshwater drum and people are like drum are terrible they're the yickiest fish ever and then we got people that love them like me but you do have to keep them cold you know one of the things i think people like about walleye and crappie is that it tastes pretty good even when it's been abused you know what i mean yeah, definitely. Uh, there's definitely. I think catfish is another one of those that like isn't going to just go to heck if you don't take perfect care of it. Um, whereas some other fish are definitely. I know that the I have not done this with I have not done this with drum, but I do hear that like if you don't keep it on ice, it gets really mushy. That's where my wife Kathy's at. She's like, you know, she used to be a real hardcore about bluegill and crappie, but she's like, you know, I basically like any fish. As long as you bring it home fresh and put it right into the pan within the next day or so. Now, aside from all that, uh, one thing I want to talk about too is that when you set fish right on ice, there's a time factor there. But is it okay for the fish to sit on the ice? I mean, I heard it's the water that causes the problem. As the ice starts to melt, then the water gets inside the cavity. But that the, you've got several hours because that skin is going to protect the fish as long as the ice is solid but when it gets into liquid water it can start just soaking that up yeah and like ideally shove them in like a ziploc bag and then put them on the ice that's another okay all right yeah i mean i I like to carry if i'm gonna do that i got big one gallon um ziploc bags usually to get it on there your typical small table table size fish is gonna fit in in most of those pretty good and if you've cleaned it if you if you've done I mean, if you've started the process, you might be able to not completely clean them and get them broken down enough that you can get a couple in a Ziploc bag too. So, okay. So getting back, you know, yeah, with the crappie or the bluegill and the cat flavor suffers some, the texture is what really suffers when you abuse, you know, Kathy and I don't even freeze fish anymore. We, we're just such a couple of snobs about it and, and, and enjoying having our sources of fish so close to the house that, that, uh, we don't even fool with freezing because it just kind of, you know, and if you get, let them get too warm and you, know, you can drag a crappie around all day i did it when i was a kid all the time and and we ate them and we loved them but you know you can drag them around and they're pretty forgiving other fish like drum delicious you know blue cat i think is another one delicious but you better treat it at least reasonably well and try to get it under refrigeration as soon as you can now when do we back off and just say bad plan we haven't got the resources we can't keep any fish today I mean, for me, it's a, it's a a lot of it is, is what's the outside temperature and 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 how how quickly can I get these things from streamside to to a cooler or something like that. And I mean, if it's uh, middle of the summer and it's 
you know, really hot degrees. out. Yeah. Okay. 95 degrees out, you know, and I gotta, if I'm just like down wade fishing in a Creek somewhere way far away from where I'm not going to be dragging any kind of cooler or anything like that. And I'm probably not keeping anything. If I got to walk back out and I got that fish carrying it along for, you know, half an hour, you know, or whatever. Yeah. Hanging from your belt. Out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hanging back out there. It's, or even, you know, it could be even longer than that. Um, when I, when I'm up in South Dakota and I go fishing out there and I, this is these creeks that are just absolutely full of brook trout, just crazy numbers of brook trout and you can keep them. And, but I just don't because it's like, I get so far away from the campsite or the car or whatever. I'm just like, there's no sense in keeping these things. Cause if I got them out of the water this long, and typically, you know, it's fairly warm there in the summertime. They're not going to be worth a, a darn. So I just let them go. <laughs> well, it makes sense. I mean, sometimes you just got to let a project go. So here's kind of what I'm coming down to and tell me if I'm, if I'm following this right, but it's basically a time temperature relationship, gauge your temperature outside, gauge your water temperature, assess your storage capability, assess how long it's going to take you to get around to cleaning those things. And that's crucial because people that you know, I know people will leave them in the bucket overnight because they're just too tired to clean. And they, they say it's fine, but they have a hard time selling me on that. You know what I mean? So get that clean and done. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and end that piece right there because Jeff and I, we go on to talk for another 10 minutes or so about what we do when we get home with the fish and we're cleaning them and we're putting them in the fridge or the freezer. Uh, but this piece was on the culinary care of fish water side, and we're about to move away from that. So we'll save that stuff for the next show. I want to thank Jeff Donaldson, fish nerd librarian, the flatland fly fisher for coming in here and teaching us a few things about the ethical, humane care of fish water sign. I intend to get out and practice my humane fish care techniques a whole bunch. I don't know about you, but it sounds like another excuse to go fishing to me and let's get on it and let's go ahead and do it because those fish dinners just can't be beat. All righty. This is crappie hippie. Thanking you for tuning in. Tight lines and Valentines. Peace out. Damn it, I missed Jeff Downsey. I'm so glad he's back. <laughs> well, thanks, man. He's an awful cool guy, and I sure love him to pieces. We have a lot of fun together. Oh, I feel like I'm cheating on him, John. <laughs> I'll tell you why, because he's our FM librarian and I am reading a book right now uh, called uh, Chasing Giants. And I'll be interviewing the author later this week on that book. It hasn't come out yet. It comes out in April. So it doesn't this exist. This is so cool. How do you do this? How do you get a book that's not even out? This is so awesome. Uh, they call me, John. <laughs> oh, so, well, and usually so. usually when they do that i call jeff and say send a copy to jeff one to me or one to, you know whatever but it turns out i'm reading this book and i thought it was gonna be like just another like fish book on how to catch big fish which is not something that's interesting to me because i think catching fish is catching fish the fish don't care how big they are they don't they don't know what you're doing but right. it, it turns out the dude is a scientist and it's a scientific process of trying to find out the biggest fish in the world and in the meantime, I'm learning so much biology and history and paleontology as I'm reading the book. So Thursday, I'm interviewing him. He'll be on the next podcast. Uh, it'll be really fascinating. I can't wait to see what he's got to say. So he also has a TV show on National Geographic. And I don't know. They call me, say, hey, Clay, you want to read this book? And now it's, I, have, I have the unedited copy. So I've been marking it up. I'll send it back to him to edit later. <laughs> that is fabulous i yeah. cannot wait yeah it's gonna be interesting so and I'll, I'll send the book out to you john if you want to read it after so that'd be fabulous i would love to do that yeah 
All right. So what's next? We got so much. Well, I just got a couple shout outs I need to do here real quick. Um, I need some crappie spots near Searsport, Maine. Where the hell is Searsport, Maine? I got to look it up. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Yeah, look it up. Hey, Siri, where is Searsport, Maine? Here it is on the map. That doesn't help me, Siri. I'm making an audio show. It's two hours, three hours away from me. It's all I know. Okay. It's really far. <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's near the uh, coast, but I guess there's some lakes right around it. This guy's a southern boy that got moved up to Maine, and he still wants to keep up on his crappie fishing, and he mm-hmm. needs some spots. And I told him I'd shout it out on the, on the uh, Fish Nerds Facebook group, but I also promised him I'd shout it out on the show. So help Bob get into some crappie spots near Searsport, Maine. Let's set about a, like an hour's drive as the, the limit there. Unless it's a really good spot. But you get my friend Bob into some crappie, and I will send you a crappie doodler. So oh, call so- us, email us, do this, do that. Please get in touch with us and help Bob find some crappie near Searsport, Maine. Now, here's the thing. Searsport, Maine is north of Rockland, Maine. Rockland is where Jeff, uh, where Karen Talbot and um, the gang live. Karen, Karen and uh, Rhett live there. And it's right on... On the ocean. Yeah, in, it in, is. In Penobscot Bay. So the challenge is going to be, there are small ponds around there, but what's in There's those one like ponds? little lake there, right, right yeah. there to the northwest, yeah. Yeah, now it's curious because crappie are, and I can say this with confidence this time, crappie are not native to Maine. Yeah, <laughs> no, they're not. <laughs> they are not. Neither are largemouth bass, smallmouth bass, bluegills, pumpkin seeds, or any other sunfish. So... It'll be interesting to see what people find because it has to be a lake that at one point someone decided crappie need to be there. That's right. That's and I, right. And I don't hear a lot about a lot of crappie fishing in Maine, so it uh, doesn't mean it's not there. Nope. It means I haven't heard about it. So. That's right, and that's why we need some help, brother. All right. Seaport, see, see what? Yeah, see, uh, Searsport, Searsport, Maine. Searsport, Searsport Maine. All so. right, cool. Did we cover right. everything, John? I think so. Um, I did do a new video on the tailspin. So if you're bored for something to do and you want to learn how to make a tailspin, check out my YouTube channel, Glasswater Angling, featuring crappie hippie. But that's all I had for finals. Well, so we just wrapped up our ice fishing season, John. We are done. I put it to bed. The fat lady sang. There we go. And I, I'm gonna, can I read you something? So, sure. So I had a fishing trip the other day where I took it, you know, a nine-year-old girl ice fishing with her parents, right? Uh-huh. And they didn't catch any fish. Oh. Right? Can you believe that? Uh, um, yes. You know, some days that happens. And in fact, you yes, were, you it were, does. I don't care who you are. You were, you were texting me that morning. I sent you a picture of, of my ice shack with deer running behind it. Exactly. And I was ready for a good day. They came out early. They were game. They were excited. And this nine-year-old girl named... Maris and her parents, four hours straight fishing, and the fish were there, and they were chasing jigs, but they would not bite no matter what we did. Oh. They end up with three tiny yellow perch, and Maris, a nine-year-old girl, didn't catch anything. Oh. So I, at the end of the day, I said, oh, you know, thanks for coming out with me. I hope you had a good time. And they gave me the lip service of like, oh, it was great, blah, blah, blah. And I thought, no, they hated this. <laughs> they didn't catch any fish. <laughs> Must have been awful for them. So my, my guide brain says the goal is catch as many and as big a fish as possible. And then I sent, them, sent I took a lot of photos. From, from, I always, always take extra photos on no fish days, so I, they have a lot of memories, right? And then the mom texted me 
And it said, uh, thank you, Clay. You are so skilled at what you do. It's so patient and positive with us all, especially Maris. This was a wonderful experience and a very special end to the winter. That's a review for a bad fishing day. Yeah. I ain't bad. <laughs> that is not bad. Clearly, you're doing something right, and that is what fishing's all about, I mm -hmm. think. I'm really seeing some respectful parenting here, some really good guiding here because teaching a child that gratification, <laughs> teaching a child that gratification can be delayed or not show up at all, and you can still have a great time. Mm -hmm. That's that's really you're one of those guides that can really translate the larger picture. It's really you're creating a lot of good fishers out there, my friend. Well, thank goodness for electronics because we saw fish all day. <laughs> that's <laughs> right. You had proof. They're down yeah, there. We even I, put I, an underwater I, camera down and saw fish not <laughs> eating stuff. So <laughs> rotten fish. <laughs> and, and I and what I provide, I sell opportunity to fish. People say, Do you guarantee fish? I went, Nope, I guarantee opportunity to catch a fish. You're, you're chasing a wild animal. So it's and usually deer, usually you catch fish so <laughs> well deer must be like bananas you got deer coming around just forget it we might as well pack up huh? i know but they were so fun to see they, they was, were they were so they fun were. And, a and great, a, great picture and i learned another important lesson on a windy sunny day if it's above freezing don't put up an ice fishing tent because when you screw your anchors into the ice the sun's going to hit them and oh. they become just deep puddles where the anchors are. And when the wind blows, your anchor becomes a box kite and flies away. <laughs> <laughs> so I learned that. <laughs> because Always I, learning. I had to run really fast and hard in some slush <laughs> and go catch my tent. <laughs> and, then, and then catch it, you know, strap it all down again, put it away, and then pretend to that family, like, no big deal. It happens all the time. Meanwhile, I'm in pain and I'm winded and I'm like, I'm okay. It's fine. Just keep fishing. It's <laughs> who has an inhaler. I need oxygen. I'm about to die. <laughs> what a great image. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that's my game. So now I'm on to planning my open water fishing, John, but I have to wait for the ice and snow to melt so I can get to my boat and get that ready to go. April 1st opens up salmon season here in New Hampshire. Okay. Yep, and I have to wait till my boat thaws out. And there's six well, feet of, six feet of snow between me and my boat. Walls. I'm sure you'll find plenty of things to do. Yep, sunshine. I need sunshine. <laughs> I need snow to melt. That's all. <laughs> you got anything else, John? No, I think I'm good, brother. All right. Well, hey, let's take we have a lot of thank yous today. We do. Yeah. Why don't you hit us with the people you can remember? All right, I'll do my best. Well, first of all, thank you to Diana's Bath Salts for fishing the news theme. Thank you to Wally Pleasant for our show theme. Thank you to Todd Correa for filling us in on cinder worms. Thanks to Doc and Dr. David Schiffman for showing up and doing a little piece with us. And finally, thank you to Jeff Donaldson, the fish nerd librarian, flatland fly fisher himself, for doing a thing on culinary care of fish water side. Did I get everybody, bro? I think you did, because we know we're not allowed to mention the person who wrote our fish sex theme. We are not. He said to thank me, "Thank you so much because he said, it's fabulous." He said, "Never mention my name." I know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> hey, and that's right. So if you want to send stuff and you know just don't want to be credited for it, that's fine. Well, we can use some more theme music. I need to have a theme for product reviews, which I want to do more of. I okay. need. We need a theme for our culinary reports. Our effing culinary. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so at least that's two themes we need right there. And I do want to. Uh, you know, add more elements to the show. So if you have ideas, let us know. 
Uh, today's show is kind of in the idea of where I want the show to go, where it's like a magazine. Lots of different voices, lots of different ideas all coming together for an hour of fun. So, hour of fun. Hour of fun. All right, that's it, John. They've listened to a bunch of fish nerds when they should have been fishing. Uh, so what's our thing? Can we say, uh, oh, you know what to say, John. Well, we've already done the thank you. Yeah, so, so now you say on to uh, our closing. Our closing, which is. Which is, I don't remember. Wait a minute. No, what's, Wait a minute. What's the first thing? It is, remember the code of the fish nerds, John. Spawn, Spawn early, early and, and often. often. Right. Oh, well, I, yeah. You got it. Can I do it? Do it. Remember the code of the fish nerds. Spawn early and often. Never trust a free lunch with strings attached. And swim against the current every chance you get. You did it, John. You made a fish nerds podcast. Thanks for thanks for doing this. You know, I'm playing the sex music. <laughs> I just love this. Come on. It's so good. Perfect.